appreciate that, Brother Phil. You know, I was uh, listening to that uh, final song, which was fantastic, by the way. Thank you. It's a phenomenal choice. Um, obviously, the Holy Spirit was guiding that. And I was on the fence about um, uh, a particular part. I originally had two passages that I was looking at, but in interest of time, you know, every passage that you do adds more time to the service. And um, uh, I felt like um, I was going to cut it until about five minutes ago. And um, But I think it's important that we take a few minutes and um, go back into the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, and uh, just get the stage set for what he's going to tell us in the book of John. So if you have your Bibles, open up to uh, Psalms chapter 37, and uh, follow along with me as I read this, uh, or 36, sorry, uh, not 37. It's a short psalm, it's, um, I think it's something that bears laying out so we can begin. In the book of Psalms, chapter 36, starting off in the first verse, the Lord speaks to us when he says, Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for it flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit, for he has ceased to be wise and to do good. He plans wickedness upon his bed, and he sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. But your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgment are like a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill in the abundance of your house. You give them to drink of the river of your delights. For you, for with you is the fountain of life. And in your light we see light. Oh, continue your loving kindness to those who know you. And your righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of pride come upon me. And let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the doers of iniquity had fallen, and they have been thrust down and cannot rise. Well, let that sort of percolate in your head as we turn to John chapter 14. This morning we're continuing in a series that we've titled... The Nuts and Bolts of Christianity, Basic Tools Necessary for Living a Godly Life. We're going to be in this series for several weeks, and um, uh, last week we were talking about um, some of the the bits and things that you need to be able to help define your walk. Today we're going to look at where our reliance really falls when it comes to our walk with God. I've entitled the sermon... uh, treats, not tricks, because when you come before the Lord, He doesn't trick us. He doesn't give us what we don't ask for. He gives us what we need. He gives us the Holy Spirit. And that's really the focus that we're going to look at this morning in His loving kindness, as the psalmist wrote. The things that He pours out of from above, the streams of His delight, the the joy that He continually just dumps upon us if we're willing to to receive is so much greater than anything we can begin to imagine. Oftentimes, we like to define 
the good that we want God to give us, right? We look at Jesus as more of a, a sort of like a weird sort of um, heavenly Christian version of Buddha. You know, you, you rub the cross or you rub the belly, you, you, you bow down a few times and you say, God, give me, right? And we, we want God to give us. We don't really want God to give us what he, what he wants to give us because what he wants to give us is his Holy Spirit. And he wants his Spirit to be so powerful in us that we follow so obediently that we can't figure out where our will and his will ends and begins. We want to be so lockstep with him that it's not one of these things like we are forced to do it, but our will becomes so intertwined with him that we just can't we can't separate the two. That's what he's looking for us. And so when Jesus was coming to the end of his ministry, and he starts to go through the last few chapters as he begins to talk to the disciples, we come to what we call what uh, most theologians call the farewell cycle of Jesus. As he begins in sort of in chapter 13 to sort of lay out the final days. He's telling them that he's leaving. He's telling them that he's going to be going to a place they can't follow. He's laying down the understanding of, of what, um, the, what's going to take place. And he's letting them know that he is not leaving them alone and unequipped. And that's where we sort of come into the scene here in chapter 14, the book of John. We're going to be starting off in verse 15 as we start to move through. And we see here it says Jesus is talking to his disciples. That's the only ones that are there. And he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's where he begins this statement. And now we know we're in a different chapter. We're knowing a new line of thought when we get to verse 15. But what Jesus is doing is connecting back to the very beginning, which if, you, if you're in my Bible, you just, you just flip over one page to chapter 13, and you see in the first verse... When he sat down at the table with them for the feast of the Passover, he says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So he's connecting that back, right? And John, who's now writing 40 some odd years after the death of Jesus and resurrection and the ascension, and he's now writing from a perspective where everyone that he knew that walked with Jesus is long gone. He's the last living apostle and disciple. He's the one that's trying to give a final message to the, to the church. He's wanting them to know what he knows and know the Jesus that he walked with, that he talked with, that he ate with, that he, that he slept next to, that he, he carried the bags of. The same Jesus who on the night before he was crucified in the midst of an argument about who was going to be the greatest among the apostles, which John was in that argument, right? John was so concerned about whether or not he was going to be considered one of the better disciples, right? Because you had the disciples that were 12 of them, but then in the disciples that were 12, you had three of them that were pretty cool, right? That was Peter, James, and John. And then you, among those three, you had John himself, who was known as the apostle whom Jesus loved, but he wanted to make sure that he was that guy, so he sent his mother to Jesus. Remember that? He said, hey, mom, could you... Could you Go, you know, hit up the big guy and just to make sure that we're in that, we're in that, that inner, inner circle of the inner circle, right? He's already in that argument. And Jesus, in the midst of this argument, in the midst of all this frustration, hours before he's going to go to the cross, so take on the sins of the entire world, hours before that, he gets up from the table, he wraps up his stuff, you know, he goes and he picks up a bucket of water and a cloth. And he went to each one of the disciples and he washed their feet, right? 
the ultimate act of humility from the creator of the universe. This is the Jesus that John knew. The kind of Jesus that was willing to break away from every known established tradition, focus on what it really means to be a follower of the one one true God. The idea that humility is not a word that we talk about, it is a lifestyle that we live. And Jesus loved him. And we see that now with Jesus here who's connecting that loving them to the end, and he's shifting his focus. You see how John skillfully weaves this? He says that in the beginning in in, in chapter 13, verse 1, he says that he loved them to the end, and Jesus is now saying, if you love me, right? So the focus has shifted. We know that Jesus has loved them to the end. We know Jesus loves us so much that he was willing to lay down his life for us on the cross. We know that he wants us to love him. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is a pretty powerful thing, right? The word there in keep in some versions says obey, but the word keep and obey, it's an interchangeable word in the Greek that's here. And it was speaking to John, but it was not just about keeping scores. So notice what he says here. He says that you will keep my commandments, but there's a, there's a level of keep and obey that's dealing with this. We're not just talking about having a scorecard. You know, I tell you, in Christianity, it would be so much easier if we just had a list, right? Just a straight-up list. Now, Paul does a good job of giving us some basic rules and outlines, you know, but John doesn't do that here, right? John says, I already know what Paul wrote about. I know what Peter wrote. I know what James wrote. But this is something I'm going to give you as a final sort of cap on this. And I don't want you to be so focused on keeping score. We like to keep score, Phil, don't we? Yeah. I'll tell you, I was watching that football game yesterday with Caleb, and I was really excited about keeping score. If they had decided not to keep score, I'd have been really irritated because, you know, I wanted to see the score. I wanted to know we were winning. I wanted to know when to stomp and when to shout and when to cheer. And even in my Christianity, I want to know that, right? And it's so much easier to keep score. I can tell that I'm a better Christian than you if I do this. Isn't that easier? Wouldn't that be nice? We could do that. Check box A. But we're not in middle school, you know? We're not living the life of a basic believer. We are moving beyond that. We're looking for the meat, right? We're not talking about, and this is what that whole concept of, of obeying and, and, and keeping is really trying to bring out. It's hard with the English to really bring this out because there's a, there's a couple little words, two, two words, there are two-letter words in Greek, in and with, right? And, and it talks about in and with. This is the, the understanding here in English. And the idea is that Paul of our, John is trying to tell us is that when we're keeping his commandments, it's not a keep as in we're keeping track. It's to keep as an obey, as to live, as to experience on a daily basis. We should be so immersed, as I mentioned before, in God's will that we are going to move forward in the way God wants us naturally. It's going to be an organic growth as we seek to move closer to his will. That's one of the issues, I think, that we have with Christianity. See, the default in our brain, we're very default. We do, All of us, and I'm not just saying you, me, every human being on the planet, we are, our brains, especially when it comes to religion, we are wired in a weird way. Our default is to act, and this is in every religion just about across the planet. We are talking about this in Sunday school, the idea of a works-based um, belief. We all of us like to default to the works-based understanding. So the default in our brain is we act as if, um, uh, if we justify or we find our justification in God 
by saying, I am a good person, therefore Jesus should accept me, right? And that's sort of the mode. And then, but that's not Christianity, because if we are acting upon our good works, then we're not doing what God wants us to do. You see, the, the right response should be, Jesus accepts us, so therefore I will be a good person, right? Therefore, I will serve and obey him. And this is an important distinction because the other way of thinking when we keep score is it ends in sort of a smug, self, self-righteous, self-centeredness because we begin to look at all the things that we bring to the table with God. And we begin to show all the things that we think we are when Jesus doesn't want all that. He just wants us. But there's a dark side to that too. You see, if we think that we've arrived and we have, and we oftentimes do that, we, we're easy to put ourselves up against other Christians that aren't quite as spiritual as we are, and so it's easy for us to measure up. We normally don't pick the ones that are more spiritual than us, right? We like to pick the ones that are less. It's like the skinny guy that walks around with a fat guy, you know, and I did that in high school. I was really skinny, and now look what God's done to me, you know, okay, maybe I did it myself. It doesn't matter, you know, we like to do that. We like to have those contrasts, you know, and um, I that's just the way we are. And we don't ever contrast us against the people that are better than ourselves. And so we often do that, but there's a, there's a danger to this. And this is where I think it really, people really struggle. This is where people actually live, is if you feel you have to do something to earn your salvation, there's always that nugget inside you that's going to say, you're not good enough. And that's going to build up a level, level of anxiety and shame and frustration because no matter what we do, we will never measure up. And so in the darkness, in the secret place, when we're by ourselves and we're staring up to God and tears are flowing because we know we can't quite do anything to earn our salvation, that's the point where Jesus tenderly comes down and says, I know. I don't expect you to. I have forgiven you. I love you. I want you. Not because of anything you've done, but because of what I've done. That's a powerful place. That gives everybody hope. The vilest offender to the one not so. And I think that's an important concept that we need to look at. Jesus is teaching, he's teaching us to reach out to him and to follow his commandments. But his commandments are tough. I don't know about you guys, but I've looked at them, you know, just a couple times. And the best part about this, I know Phil will appreciate this, you know, there's only two, right? I mean, so it's not like you have to read 750 or 600 and some odd that the Jews had. You can take it down to two. He says, love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Check. Love your neighbor as yourself. Check and a half. You know, maybe check sort of, check plus, maybe on days, depending upon who the neighbor is. I've got a good neighbor. It's easy to love him. But, you know, not every neighbor is as good as my brother Fred. And so some neighbors are hard, right? We've talked about this in the past. But, you know, the truth of the reality is that those two commandments, which Jesus himself said, uh, hang all of the laws of the prophets and everybody else, right? The entire encapsulation of the Old Testament hangs on those two, those two commandments. He says, if you can follow those two, you're done, you're good. Yeah, right. So Jesus, I love it. In verse 15, he says, if you love me, uh, he just throws that, I love this, like not even, a, not even a full sentence in Greek, okay? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I don't know how he said this with a straight face. I really don't. 
Because I, I get the intention and the belief that Jesus loved to laugh. Now, we don't have any proof for a fact that he laughed in Scripture. We know he cried, right? But, so I, but I believe that my Jesus loves to laugh, and I'm looking forward to hearing him laugh in heaven. And so I can almost see in the back of his mind as he's laying this out, knowing the guys that are there. And these are the same guys who within six hours from this moment ran away from him as he was being arrested, Right? In a few minutes from now, Peter is going to make that great claim. Hey, I will kill or die for you. They'll never take us alive, Jesus. He was one of the first ones that ran after he cut the ear off, right? All of them ran. Even one of the guys ran. He ran so fast, he ran out of his clothes. Left the clothes hanging. Literally comic book moment. He takes off and the clothes fall to the ground. Well, there's a guy holding on to him. But you know what I'm saying. None of them stayed with him. None of them stayed faithful. And Jesus is saying, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. But because he knew what he was asking, because he understood the magnitude of what he was asking them to do, he knew that the only way for them to keep this requirement to justify the love through the keeping of the faith was to give us something to help us of divine proportion. Nothing short of God himself could help us accomplish the two commandments that Jesus gave us, right? And so we see that here in verse 16. He says, I will ask my father. This is what he's saying to his disciples. I will ask of my father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. There's a great book out there. If you ever get a chance to read it, I encourage you to. I like Francis Chan. I've had a chance to meet him. I have a chance to listen to him preach. And just a phenomenal guy. I love his books. He wrote a book called The Forgotten God. It's about the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes, we forget who that is. Oftentimes, he gets overlooked because his goal was to point towards Jesus, right? God's goal was, it was, to, was to glorify Jesus. The Holy Spirit's goal was to glorify Jesus. Uh, Jesus' goal was to be obedient to the Father and, and the Holy Spirit and to move forward and as a triumvirate, as a union, as a trinity of, of the Godhead to move forward and bring us salvation. I mean, there's a lot packed in this. I don't have time. I could be sermon after sermon on just what I said alone. But the idea what we're looking at here is that Jesus was giving us the greatest gift that he, anybody's ever been given to mankind, and that is the Holy Spirit. Because we could not keep the commandments of Jesus without the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And that's a fact. The problem I run into is, when you look at this, it says, we all jump over the word another, we jump right to the helper. We all, I mean, you guys are a well-taught church. You guys understand what, what helper means. I know if I ask just about anyone in here that's been in church long enough, you'll even be able to give me the Greek in this, right? Everybody here knows the word paraclete, right? It's not parakeet, paraclete, right? Paraclete. That is, the, that is the Greek word that means helper here, right? And we know that we get a helper in Jesus. And in some versions, the King James, which is kind of irritating, they use this word. They use the word comforter, you know. And, and at one time, comforter meant something different than it means now. That's one of the challenges I have with the King James Version, that sometimes the words that they were so meaningful at the time when it was written doesn't have the same level of meaning today. Because language shifts and changes. English language is always um, uh, changing a little bit. And so what this word paraclete um, means, it means para to come alongside and or to alongside and then kletos, which means to call someone to you to stand 
alongside you. Paraclete is what the word is. And so the English language, back when King James was, was busy putting pen to paper, trying to get the Bible translated, and I'm, I know I'm euphemistically speaking, there's a lot of translators. I know King James is not a godly man. I don't want any letters or cards this week. <laughs> Flow with me, please. Okay? So we know that as he was putting out this, uh, this translation, that the, the word comforter had a different meaning. Comforter was more from the, uh, the old um, uh, Latin version, which means with strength, right? And that's what comfort in the original language means, is it means with strength. And so we have, a, we have somebody that comes alongside us with strength. That's what we're looking for. But the neat thing is, and I don't know if you guys even noticed it, but there's that little word right before helper, right before comforter, where it says another, Right? Well, I'm just using the laws of logic that my brother Phil has so pounded deeply in me because, you know, he loves to teach people how to think because that's what he does. He knows that thinking people will eventually come to know Christ, and I believe that. And so um, when we do basic logic, if, if, if the Holy Spirit is another comforter, then there had to have been that one came for him, right? So who was the comforter that came before? Who was the helper that came before? And let's just go and actually use the Greek because that's the best word out there, right? Paraclete. Who was the paraclete before? That was Jesus. Jesus was the paraclete before, and the Holy Spirit was the one after. So we actually have two, and we say, well, what is paraclete? The best word we have nowadays is lawyer, advocate, somebody that actually stands before us in a legal setting. So we have a lawyer that sits on the right hand of the judge of the universe, God himself, and we have a lawyer that sits next to us in our table. And guess what? They're both on our side. I don't know about you guys, but I want the advisor to the judge and the best attorney in the universe on my side when I come to that final day and the enemy of the people, the accuser of the brethren, stands up and points at Al Weeks and says, he's not one of yours. And Jesus is going to whisper into, into the God the Father's ear and says, oh, I don't think so, God. And the Holy Spirit is going to stand up and say, oh, I object. I object on the grounds of. And he's going to go on and do his old southern lawyer kind of thing. And, and he's going to throw the book at the enemy because the enemy hasn't have a ground or a leg to stand on. Because I stand before you justified, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done with me, through me, and to me. Amen. That's where we are. And so when you look at this, and I don't know about you guys, but I think that's a powerful thing. We talk a lot about the fact that, um, that Jesus is supposed to live within us, but it's really not Jesus, it's the Holy Spirit. And that's a powerful thing. Now, I know there's some denominations that talk about different times and the Holy Spirit comes and goes as though he's like the tide that waxes and wanes. And some days he's strong with us and some days he's not, like it's some kind of weird force movement, you know? And I don't see that. See, Jesus is constant. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And I don't need to look at whether or not I'm speaking in tongues or I'm, I'm floating in the air or I'm doing crazy stuff to justify my salvation. I know that Jesus is going to be with me because he said he was. I know because I can look at the track record of what he's done in my life day by day in the good times and the bad. I know that when I'm looking towards a future and I'm concerned about things that are out there and I'm worried about the stuff that, that are, that's on the horizon, about everything that's out there. Let me tell you something. If we start looking too much at the horizon, it's going to freak us out. I don't know about you, but the future is kind of scary at times. But I don't look at the future without the lens of Jesus Christ. And it's that Holy Spirit filter that is there to say, yeah, it may be a little scary, but I'm with you. Yeah, it may be a little tough, but I'm with you. Yes, you may suffer, you may struggle, you may have problems, but I'm with you every step of the way. 
And see, that's, the, that's where we are as a Christian, as a follower of Christ. And so when we look at this divine proportions that God has given us through the Holy Spirit, we know that God is with us. And look what it says here in verse 17. It says this, and he, John wants to clarify. He wants to, you to know exactly what it is. As Jesus is speaking to him, he says, and that is, this, this helper that's with you is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him. That's what he says. Look what it says about that. The world can't have him because it can't see him or know him. Those are powerful words. Powerful words that the apostle is laying down at them. You can't, they can't see him or know him. But the, the best word of all comes right at the end of that verse. Because he abides with you and I will be with you. And there's that wonderful word that John loves to have. The Greek word there is menin. I know a lot of you are like, woo, I've been wanting to know what that word was, right? It means to dwell, to tabernacle, to tent with you, to spend time with you, to where he will be in the midst of you and you will be around him. We've gone over and over this verse every time we open up the book of John because John loves using the word abide. And I love to tell you what it means because it's the most powerful thing we have as a Christian is the faith to know that God is with us. Look what he says in verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come with you. You know, he's worried about them. You know, up to this point, Jesus has been leading them. He's been advising them. He's been teaching them. He's been exhorting them, building them up. And at times when they were not doing right, he was critiquing them. How many times did he have to smack Peter down? Peter, get your foot out of your mouth. Peter, you're acting like Satan. Peter, Peter. I mean, we only get like a small window, right? I almost feel like that the writers of the New Testament didn't really want to beat up on Peter too much because he really is a great guy, right? He really does love Jesus, and it's his passion and zeal that comes out later in his ministry. But there are times when Peter, as the mouthpiece of the apostles, oftentimes said before he thought, and oftentimes Jesus had to smack him down. He did this, I'm sure, with all of them. And he knew that when he left, when he actually ascended into heaven, he wasn't going to be here to do that for him anymore. They had to have something, right? And that's where the Holy Spirit that is within us is there. And he says, I will not leave you as an orphan. Legally, in the Roman Empire, which is the context they lived in, an orphan was somebody who lost just one parent. You only had to lose one parent to be considered legally an orphan. In this case, they were losing Jesus was probably both father and mother too in many ways spiritually he did not want them to be an orphan he did not want to be them them to be alone and so by saying i'm not going to leave you an orphan but after a little while you no longer see me but you will see me because i live and you will live also and in that day you will know, remember the contrast to the world won't know, the world won't see? He just said, you will see me, you will know me, I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I in you, and we're together. And he who has my commandments, look what it says, has and keeps, we talked about that in the beginning, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and, who lo- and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and I will disclose myself to him. Now, we can go on and on reading this. This is a phenomenal discussion. But I think it's something we need to really focus on. I was listening to, um, uh, listening to a preacher who was preaching this week. I think it was Ravi, but I could be mistaken. It might be someone else. 
And um, he was quoting one of my favorite theologians, C.S. Lewis. And it was so much so I had to stop the car, pull over, and write it down on my notepad so I can get this down because I wanted you guys to have it. C.S. Lewis said in one of his works that everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea. I thought, man, that's great. Everyone thinks that forgiveness is a lovely idea. As long as we can keep it in the cognitive realm, we're constantly just thinking about it, that's great. It's a wonderful concept. And when we want people to forgive us, yes, it's right there. We're already there. You need to forgive me, right? We love that part. The problem comes is when the nuts and the bolts sort of get in there. And C.S. Lewis says everybody thinks that forgiveness is a lovely idea until he has something to forgive, has to forgive. Then the rubber meets the road. And Jesus is basically saying, if you love, if you keep my commandments, my commandments are pretty basic. My commandments are love your neighbor and love God. And we can, we can break it down distinction, but truth of the matter is we're supposed to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. We're supposed to love God with every fiber of our being. Those are the two great commandments and everything hinges on that. And the sad part is we don't do that nearly as well. And I think one of the challenges we run into is in this Western world, we've lost the concepts that were baked in, baked in to the faith in the first century. Back in those days, a person didn't just come to faith by simply doing what we do, right? We wait till the preacher says, and in conclusion, right? And then he gives the, the wonderful call to the altar. And then everybody knows that if you truly want to get saved in a Southern Baptist church, there you go, Phil, Southern Baptist church, that you got to go down front, you got to confess your sins, you got to kneel in tears, and a, a preacher or a deacon or somebody's got to have their hand on your back, and then you got to get up. And tell the congregation, because you've got to publicly announce that you've accepted Christ, therefore you've met all the boxes, you've checked all the areas, and now you can finally be saved. Truth of the matter is, that's not how salvation was done for probably almost 2,000 years of our, of our faith. That's only been what's happened for the last 100 years, right? Before then, faith was brought up in, in, in a community setting among families. That's why when you see the scriptures say that so-and-so was saved in, his, saved in his whole family, there was something that was involved in that because the family was involved in this. The church community was involved in this. They would take the young people and they would put them through a process. The Catholic church calls it catechism. We've lost that ability to be able to train our young students. The Latin there is catechumen. We don't have those anymore. We don't teach the kids and we grow them up. And when they're ready, when they're mature, when they're at that point where they have gotten to where they need to be, then we, we move to the next step, which is getting them ready to approach the table, right? Which we're going to do in a few minutes. And when they approach the table of the Lord to take the Lord's Supper, they're ready to understand what it means. Because we know as a Christian, as a mature believer, no one should take of the Lord's Supper unless it means something to them. Otherwise, they're taking their own life in their own hands. We don't teach our kids like this. I'm not, I'm not, I say we, I'm saying generically. I realize we have good parents in here and that most of our parents, ultimately it's your responsibility. But as a church as a whole, we're supposed to come alongside you as a faith community to help draw you closer to where you need to be. Because there's something that we were missing in this, right? And the missing thing is that this, this Lord's Supper table has a meaning beyond just a little bit of bread, very little bit of bread, and a very little bit of juice. It means something. See, every time we come to this table, we are participating in a covenant renewal ceremony. It has the same weight in God's eyes, in my opinion, and I could be mistaken, but in my opinion, it has the same weight as a vowel renewal that you have in your wedding. It has the same weight 
as if we are standing before God himself and reaffirming that we love him, that we're going to follow him, that we're going to do what his commandments say, which is to love our neighbors, to love God. We are coming before him. We're, we're doing this to remember the covenant that he laid out that day on the cross where his body was broken and his blood was shed. We're not teaching people this anymore. We're not teaching people what the word of God means. We've gotten to this weird, spoon-fed world of Christianity. We're just fat little babies sitting around in our high chair waiting for somebody smarter and better in theology than us to, to spoon-feed the pablum into our mouth because we can't find the meat ourselves. You know the truth of the matter is? It's everybody's responsibility in this room that call themselves a Christian to seek the meat. You know, every time I open God's word, it convicts me. Every time I open God's word, I find application. I find understanding. I find an opportunity to draw closer to the mind of God. Every time. And I know that I'm still a babe in Christ. I'm not nearly where I need to be. And I think that all of us need to have that perspective that we are to be focusing on what God has called us to do. It's about having and keeping his commandments. Having the commandments written in our heart and keeping them in our day-to-day -day life as we walk next to people. And you know, this is hard to do in this society. Our politics of our country is so wacky right now. We're so divided now as a nation. We'd like never before, well, never before in my memory. I know some of you are saying, she's the baby. What do you know? It's sad. Every time I turn on the news, whether you like the president or not, whether you like the Congress or not, whether you like the Supreme Court justice decisions or not, whether you like the Ninth Court or the Eighth Court or however many courts they've got, I, don't, you know, I, I get frustrated even trying to keep track of all of it. But in the midst of all this, God's message is getting lost. Now, I have my own particular opinions politically speaking, but what does God say about the refugees? and the orphans, and those seeking help. Wouldn't it be better for us to inform our political opinion based upon what the Bible teaches rather than what the world says? What does the world say about the enemies of our thought process? What does Jesus say about the enemies of our thought process? My son... My oldest son is on his way to Iraq. It scares the boogers out of me. I don't know what he's going to face. I dread the fact that I may one day get a call from a chaplain that I don't want to talk to. I have two other children serving and a, another one that so desperately wants to go, he frustrates the heck out of me. problem with the world is not that they've tried Jesus' practices and they didn't work. The problem with the world is that we've never really tried. I think that if we became a church that focused on the word of God, focused on what he's calling us to do, and loved these people here like he tells us to here, we would have no problem getting those people there into this building here 
to learn more about this book here. Period. So I guess at this point we're going to we're going to transition. We're going to move to a time where we go into the Lord's Supper and I I'm going to in a few minutes ask some of our men to come down front and help me with this. But I want to give you guys a chance to go before the Lord now in prayer. Because as we are preparing to renew the covenant, and I've asked people in the past what the covenant means, and a lot of people have a hard time articulating that. The covenant is the promise of a new kingdom. And in that new kingdom, the individuals would have the, the, the words of God written upon our hearts so powerfully that it ekes out of every fiber of our being as we live our life in front of the universe. That new covenant of restoration as God is seeking to bring us back to the garden state that he had in the Garden of Eden. That's what the covenant's all about, is to bring us back into right fellowship with God. So when we renew this covenant in a few minutes, as we focus to follow Jesus the way he's called us to, we are going to look at the foundation of this new covenant with the Lord's Supper table. So we take the bread and we remember his body that was broken and we take the juice, we remember the blood that was shed for the covenant that he was writing with us and within us. We need to ask ourselves, are we, really, are we willing to follow what the covenant means? Because there's two parts to that. We receive the covenant, we live under the covenant, but then we are required to do things. And what are the things required to do? It's to love God with all our heart, mind, and body, and soul and love our neighbors ourselves. So when we choose to renew the covenant this morning with him, I encourage you, if you're not ready to make that commitment to your neighbors and to your God, don't take it. If you're not sure, but you think you might want to, we're going to have a moment where we're going to have a time of prayer. I encourage you to ask God if there's anything that might inhibit you from taking of this Lord's Supper table, that he would show it to you, that you could repent of it, that you can move forward, because the last thing I would want the last thing I always want is anybody in here taking the Lord's Supper with uh, wrongly. Now, I'll be honest with you, in 20-something years of ministering, I've never seen anybody die because they took the Lord's Supper. Never. I've even baked the bread upon occasion. And even with my bad baking skills, I've never poisoned anybody. Nobody's ever died. I've even had a time where the grape juice wasn't as good as it could be. But just because nobody has in my memory doesn't mean nobody will. Paul was pretty clear. If we take it the wrong way, he has the right to take us out. So in light of that, I want to encourage you guys. We're going to bow our heads in a few minutes. We're going to close our eyes. And um, I'm going to ask you to go before the Lord privately, just you and him. I'm going to give you guys some silence to do that. And then we're going to move forward. So if you will, bow with me and go before the Lord.